0: All right, we're going to be in the, continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be starting Matthew chapter 18 today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 and calling this Little Ones, um, because Jesus really talks a lot about children in this passage, Um, and it got me thinking about my own experience as a child in the church and and our Sunday school um, here, and uh, this actually, for those of you who don't know, where I I started going to church here when my family moved from Southern California when I was about 10 years old, Um, and and we came primarily because uh, me and my brother and my sister really liked the Sunday school classes that they had um, here. My parents weren't necessarily that really excited about joining any new church. They were so plugged in in their church in Southern California. That's really where they got saved and uh, and, and started serving and, and all that kind of things. So when they first moved up here, my dad was focused on starting his new job, and uh, and my mom was getting settled into the community and the house and everything. And so it was kind of they, they wanted to come, and they wanted us to be in church. Obviously, they, they thought it was important. They always led us in the ways of God, but um, it wasn't something they were super excited about. And my dad was traveling a lot at the time, um, and so he, some weekends after traveling all week, he didn't really want to leave the house, um, and so sometimes he wouldn't want to come to church. Um, and so I started asking to come to church on my own um, because I just really liked my Sunday school class. I really liked my Sunday school teacher. I can't remember her name. I was trying to think of it and I'm looking through old directories this week to try to figure that out. But I, I don't know what her name was, but I can picture her perfectly in my mind because she just made me feel like I was loved and cared about and taught me about Jesus and called me to follow him. And, and so I would ask to go to these classes um, on my own. And so my mom would come and drop me off and I would walk to the class and I remember walking to, the, to that class one day um, by myself after my mom had dropped me off um, and having this realization, um, this moment where I realized like, hey, this faith, my faith is mine now. This is mine. I don't go to church. I don't follow Jesus because my parents do. I don't follow, I'm not a Christian because my family is Christian. I believe this. And even if they didn't, I would do this. And it's really from that moment and I could, I could show you, well, it doesn't exist anymore, but I was when we had classes over at Buckeye School, and I remember the spot where this happened, and this is where, that's really the moment that I chose for myself to follow Jesus and have from that time on. So sometimes we think of that that, like, the Sunday school classes and the things we do for kids are kind of secondary things and really, like, let's have that so we can get the kids out of the room so we can really do the important stuff. But based on the passage that we look at today and based on many people's experiences of church, we could argue that that matters a lot more than what's happening in here. And that, that Sunday school is something that we need to prioritize in a way that we haven't. So let's dive into it. Let's see if I'm right. Let's see. Verses one through six here. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So the disciples come to Jesus with a question. They say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? And this is really actually an understandable question. At first we might kind of balk at it and go like, well, is this really like they're just trying to get their own glory? But it makes sense because when Jesus started his ministry, he, he started by, with these words. Kind of his primary message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the disciples, as his followers, hearing this message conveyed over and over again, they understand we're in the kingdom business. This is what we do. And if you're going to do anything, if you're going to play a new sport, you want to know who's the greatest who ever played the game. If you're going to enter a field of business, you want to know who's been the most successful in this business. Who's at the top of their field? Who's the gold standard? Who should I be looking up to? That's what the disciples want to know. They're asking Jesus, who should we be looking up to? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And instead, Jesus directs them to look down. He says, if you want to be great, you got to become like children. You got to become like children. Now, this is something that that we know that when we say this, when Jesus says this, talks about being like a child, he's talking about being child like, not childish. This is something that Pastor Randy repeated all the time, that we want to be childlike, not childish. But I also would say that, that as we consider this, it's all instructive. Yes, we want to be childlike, not childish. But at the same time, you know, so when Jesus is saying, become like children, he's not talking about you know, when you're in Walmart and you see that kid throwing a fit in the toy aisle? That's obviously not what he's talking about, right? That's not what he's not talking to be like that. The kid that's like screaming, yelling, and hitting his mom. That's not who he's talking about. But that is instructive for us because I think sometimes when we're angry with God, when we're frustrated with how things are going, we want something to happen now and God's not answering our prayer the way we want him to, and we're just really upset and angry and all those things, don't you think that he might see us the same way we see that kid throwing a fit? We do that too. So that's instructive for us as well, even though it's not what he's calling us to. He's saying, you're like my children. I mean, we sang that song today, Who do you you say I am? I'm a child of God. We call ourselves children of God. Sometimes we act like children in that way. So he calls them to become like children, and he wants them to become the best version of children. He wants them to exemplify the best aspects of children. They should be trusting of their heavenly father just as children are trusting of their parents. They should demonstrate childlike faith. They should demonstrate childlike versions of the fruit of the Spirit. I had this thought earlier this week, and I thought, well, this is kind of challenging. Let's see if I can actually break down childlike versions of the fruits of the Spirit. So what does childlike love look like? Childlike love is pure love. I think if a child loves you, they really love you, and you don't have, you don't question it. Right, you might question whether some people love you or not, whether they actually care about you, whether they've got uh, ulterior motives and that kind of thing. Like, does this person really care about me? Do they really even like me? I'm not sure. But if a child loves you, you know that they love you. It's pure, childlike joy. We all have seen childlike joy. And kids get so excited for something, and they're just—that's pure joy. Childlike peace. When you see a child sleeping, that's childlike peace. You see that, a kid sleeping. They sleep harder than anybody. And, and you just see that, and you know that they're just totally at peace. Childlike patience. Now, here's where you go, hey, your theory breaks down entirely. Okay? But, I want to say, I don't think it does. I don't think it does. Because... I think the, fact, the reason that you laugh at that when I say childlike patience, and you go like, ha, 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 there's no childlike patience. What are they talking about, childlike patience? You are not, you are not underestimating childlike patience. You're overestimating adult patience. Okay? I think you're giving yourselves a lot more credit than you deserve. <laughs> in, in a, what adult patience is like. It is in fact, if you have, again, the best version of this, Well-behaved, well-disciplined children can actually be way more patient than adults, than most adults. Childlike kindness. We see childlike kindness. They can just be, again, purely kind. They care about people and want to be kind and want to be sharing. Childlike goodness, again, when it's there, not that they're always good, not that they're perfect, but again, the best aspects of this, we see this kind of purity, this, there, there's no, no question of the motives and that kind of thing. Childlike faithfulness, again, that's that trusting element that children can be very trusting. Go to the next. I know I should have them memorized, but I don't. Can you go to the next slide? Okay. <laughs> Childlike gentleness. Children can be very gentle. Childlike self-control, that's another one where you go like, well, okay, yep, again, your theory breaks down. Children have no self-control. But again, well-behaved, disciplined children, the best version of childlike self-control can often be a lot better than many adults have no self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So Jesus calls us to this childlikeness, and oftentimes it's just simply a purity. But we also see a humility in it, and specifically Jesus highlights here humility—that that that, uh, that we must have a childlike humility. And if we think about what that looks like, is that children don't have to like bring humility on because they just naturally are humble because they're of the position that they are in. But they don't have any expectation of being in control or being consulted or having being respected. They they expect it. They, they don't expect to any of those things. They are naturally humble because of the position that they're in. The problem with adults is so oftentimes we have gained positions of power and prestige and have some control over our lives. And so it's very difficult to be humble pride, the flip side of humility, is one of the primary impediments to coming to Christ. Because if you're going to come to Christ, if you're going to accept his offer of forgiveness and accept his lordship over your life, then it's necessary for you to admit that you are inadequate, to admit that you are a sinner, to admit that you need Jesus, to admit that Jesus is worthy of your submission. And so often pride gets in our way because We can't give up our own attempts at righteousness and glory. We can't give up our own. We've worked hard to build this facade to show that we have got it together. To show that we can do it, that we can make it through this life, that we are good people. And so often it's so hard to break that down and say, no, you know what, I'm not. I try to put that face out there, but ultimately I fail. Ultimately, I'm not all the things that I say that I am. I'm inadequate and I need Jesus. I need that forgiveness. I need the grace and mercy. That's why we have to have that humility because pride will get in our way, block our way to Jesus. So Jesus sets this up. They, they ask him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He, gra- he actually has a, someone, He grabs a child. He's presumably there to see him. He puts him on his knee. He says, like, you've got to be like this child. But then he he needs to show that he's not just using that child as a prop. He's not just saying, hey, this is like, be like this child. Now get out of here, kid. That's not what he does. He actually says, if you receive one of these children, if you care for one of these children, you're actually caring for me. And this is something that Jesus does throughout the Gospels, that his messaging is always, when he tries to tell people, hey, you, do you want to care for me? Care for these type of people. He always chooses the most vulnerable people. He chooses the most vulnerable groups. Here's who he chooses. In Matthew 25, 37 through 40, he says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will appear to them and say, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The people that Jesus identifies with here are the hungry and the thirsty strangers and really that word is it connotes foreigners it it means people from outside of their area not strangers to people individually but strangers to their community community sojourners is another word that's sometimes translated that's translated as the sick those who are ill those who can't come and visit people the imprisoned those who are literally behind bars and can't come out you go and visit them you're actually visiting Christ. And we can add to that list, children. Because he says, when you receive one of these little ones, you receive me. He identifies with the most vulnerable groups. If we remember, Jesus, in answering the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He says, well, first, if you want to be great, you've got to become like this child. And then immediately turns and says, you also need to receive care for children And when you do so, you're actually doing it to me. Then he's gonna offer the flip side. He's gonna offer the flip side of there's caring for children, there's welcoming them, receiving them in, but there's the flip side of it, which is causing a child to sin. Right? He says, If any of you cause this child to sin, it'd be better off if you were drowned in the sea. He actually gets pretty it's pretty graphic for the Bible he says it'd be better if you tied a big millstone around your neck and got thrown into the ocean. That's just not, hey, you'd be better off dead. That's like, you'd be better off with a really gruesome death, a really graphic death. He says you're better off if you'd cause a child to sin. Now, that's something that, again, I think we all hear and we go like, well, don't worry. I'm not teaching children to sin. What are you talking about? Well, first off, There are people who teach children to sin, that outright teach children that like stealing is okay, lying is okay, like all these things. There there are people, probably not in this room, right? There's probably not people in this room, but there are people in the world who actively teach children to sin. There are also people who through abuse and neglect of children, push them towards sinful lifestyles. And I think that would be included here as well. That we see that people have stories often when you see people whose lives have gone well off the rails, if you talk to them about what their childhood was like, abuse and neglect often push them toward those things. But then more the, the most common version of this is simply children learning by example from people who are inadvertently teaching them to walk in their sins. The children are, are watching you, whether you're an adult, whether you're a kid. People are watching you, and, and paying, kids are watching you and paying attention to how you live. And sometimes even you just, you're doing things that, that are wrong, and you know they're wrong. You just hope the kids aren't watching. But they are. They pay attention. They, they, they watch these things carefully. This made me think of um, this, this whole question of, of causing a child to sin and versus caring for them and, and the importance that Jesus places on, on kids. It reminded me of this quote from the founder of Young Life. The founder of Young Life is a guy named Jim Rayburn, and he famously said, it's a sin to bore a kid with the gospel. And he was, I think, intentionally, he was trying to be shocking, right? He was trying to, it's really what his whole Young Life was based on, the idea of like, hey, let's... Give kids the gospel in a way that's engaging and exciting to them, or as opposed to asking kids to come into at the time like very stoic churches and and just hear a, a very bland presentation of the gospel with no joy or anything behind it. And he wanted to enliven that and bring kids into the kingdom this way. But I really think it, it might be true, <laughs> right? Based on what Jesus is saying here, the idea that we need we we have a responsibility to lead kids in the ways of God and teach them the gospel, it might actually be a sin to bore a kid with the gospel. Let's look next here at verses 7 through 9. Temptations. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So, first off, Jesus says that temptations are necessary. He says temptations, though lamentable, are necessary. And they're necessary because they are what gives us the opportunity to choose to obey God or to reject Him. This was true all the way back in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, when God set up His kingdom, His people in a place experiencing His presence as King, He set up a temptation. He set up the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he told them not to eat of it that one rule established the kingdom it established that god was the one who was making the rules and that they were obeying him it made their relation defined their relationship that he was the one in authority and then adam and eve had the opportunity to choose to obey god or to rebel against him So Jesus says, these temptations are necessary. You have to have the choice. You have to have free will. You have to have the choice whether to submit to God or to rebel against him. So they're necessary, but he's saying, you shouldn't become tempters. You should be careful that you're not the one who is causing temptation in other people. And again, he's specifically addressing children earlier, but now he's kind of opening it up to everything and saying, Temptation will come to everyone, but we shouldn't be the cause of temptation. I put some verses in the, in the study guide. You can see those. We're not going to read all of them now. But Paul talks about this extensively in 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapters 8-10, through 10, where he's addressing this issue of meat sacrificed to idols. And he says, There's the, the, you have every right to do this, to eat, eat meat sacrificed to idols. And this was the main way that you could get meat in their day. And in these towns, especially these Gentile towns, there'd be these streets with pagan temples. People would go and sacrifice meat. And then those uh, priests, in order to, main, to to live, they would sell that meat to people. And often this was the only way you could really buy meat reliably in a city. So to not eat meat sacrificed to idols was to be sentenced to vegetarianism, which, phew, <laughs> I can't, I can't. I saw I ask my wife what happens if she makes dinner that doesn't have any meat in it. She doesn't do it because she knows she's learned. But but one time not that long ago there was a time when she she had like made some pasta dish and she didn't think I was coming home for dinner she thought I had like a meeting or something. And I show up and I sit down and I'm I'm not I'm not saying anything. But she goes like listen, I didn't think you were gonna be here. Okay? I didn't think you were gonna be eating with us. I said, It's fine, it's fine. I'll have something later, you know. <laughs> but but Paul, Paul says in these in passages that he would resort to vegetarianism in order not to cause another brother to stumble. Because some of these people, they had... They had lived their lives worshiping in these pagan temples. So for them to go and eat that meat, to be a part of it, they were connecting to their old life. They were worshiping these demons that they didn't want to worship anymore. So they thought, I can't. They were convicted that they could not do it. And for them to eat that meat was sin. Even though for their brother in Christ, who was not so, so convicted, for them it was not sin. It's based on their own conviction, based on their personal experience and their, their life. So he's saying, but he's saying, that person who does not feel that way, does not feel convicted not to eat this meat, if he is going to go and eat that meat, he needs to make sure he's not causing one of his brothers to stumble, one of his brothers to sin. He needs to not do that. He can't go and eat that meat. He, and, and Paul himself says that he would resort to never eating meat again in order not to cause one of his brothers to stumble. But he says, "I have every right not to do that. I have every right not I have every right to eat this meat, but I will not do it for the sake of my brothers." He didn't, he's so convicted not to become a temptation to someone else to sin against somebody else. I encourage you to look at those verses. There's something else he says in here where Jesus says these crazy extreme things about if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to end in your life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. He starts talking about mutilation, right? He says, if your hands or feet cause you to, to sin, cut them off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. That, and there's a lot of people who go like, well, see, this is why you Christians are hypocrites. You would never do that. You would never do that. You, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't follow. You don't actually follow what Jesus says here. But I think that what Jesus is doing here, because it's very extreme, or the idea of like cutting off your hand in order not to, to, to sin, because it, if, your, if your hand causes you to sin. But, but do your hands cause you to sin? Do your eyes cause you to sin? Do your feet cause you to sin? Do your body parts cause you to sin? No. They never do. And that's what he's, he's pointing. And actually, by saying this, pointing them inwards. He's saying it's in your heart is what causes you to sin. Now, if you did have a rogue hand that was just going to do whatever it wanted to, and you're walking up to people and saying like, hey, how are you? Bam! And you're like, oh, sorry, this rogue hand, its I can't control it. Then yeah, probably cut it off. The doctor might recommend it. If you truly couldn't control it and you were actively hurting people but the point is he's calling them inward he's saying it's about what's inside of you that matters but that you need to take this seriously we'll continue here in verses 10 through 14 leaving 99 see that you do not despise one of these little ones for i tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So Jesus directly, he's, he's really still talking about children. In all of this, He's still answering this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and still addressing the subject of, of children. And he says, directly, do not despise one of these little ones. That word could also be translated as look down. And I only look down on, and I only say that because I think that for our ears, that despise is really extreme. We go like, oh, don't despise children. And you're like, well, I'm not crazy. I'm not a, I'm not a lunatic. I'm not going to despise children. I just don't like them. Right, but oftentimes we do look down on children. We think that they're not important. That's often that is a problem in our in our world that people look down on children and don't think they're important. He says, "See to it that you don't do that." And then he gives us some actual. I I think it's it's important to note, in general, that that our cultural understanding of angels. Is often like totally divorced from Scripture. The, 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 like the picture of angels that we have in our culture is often just like I don't I I see sometimes and I go like, where are they getting this? It doesn't make any sense because it's not anything to do with the Bible whatsoever. It's like based on cartoons I think, but it's just entirely separate. But here we actually see some evidence for some version of guardian angels, and Jesus says to emphasize his point of why people shouldn't look down on children. He says, their angels always see the face of my father. In some sense, there are angels who are assigned to each child. That's how much God cares about them, that he assigns angels to these children, and that they're in connection with him. Then he tells this parable that we've heard many times before but usually when we hear this parable it's kind of yanked out of its context but if we put it in its context we see he's still again talking about children he tells this parable if a man has a hundred sheep one of them goes astray he goes and looks for that sheep and then rejoices when he finds it so too God cares for each person and desires that they return to his fold More specifically, God cares for each and every child and desires that none of them should perish. He says specifically here, it is not the will of my father that one of these little ones should perish. I think there's a lot of information wrapped up in there. First off, we see the fact that he says it's not the will of my father that one of these children should perish. And yet we know that they do. We know that children do die. So this shows us that not everything that happens on earth happens within god 's perfect will. some of it is in his permissive will, what he allows to happen. but it doesn't mean that he rejoices or doesn't resum- mean that he's excited about it. We also see that he is all, he also is is presenting an eternal perspective that it's not his desire that anyone should per- any of these little ones should perish eternally. This gives us evidence that when children die young, before they can understand the gospel, that they go to heaven, that they are saved. I believe that. But before children can understand the gospel, and really that's true for everyone, that, that to whatever extent they can, whatever they've under, whatever they, that you're, <laughs> let me reset. You're responsible to what has been revealed to you. You're responsible to respond to what has been revealed to you and to what you're capable of understanding. So that, that goes for children. Is like, where are they at? What are they capable of understanding? They understand that God exists. They're responsible to believe that. They understand that Jesus died for them. They're responsible to respond to that. But that before that time, they, his will is that they would not perish. And this also pushes us towards, if it is not his will that any of these should perish, then it should also be our desire to teach them the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to the children, to teach them about God and, and the love that he has for them so that they will have a chance to respond because at some point they do reach that age of accountability where they have to respond. And God cares about children. This is Jesus tells in this passage over and over again how much God wants us to value, protect, love, and care for children. I want to close by talking about Sunday school a little more because it's something that we, once again this week, Sarah came to me and said, like, I'm really struggling to find Sunday school teachers. And it honestly just breaks my heart that that's the reality that we have in, our, in this church. Because I had hoped, personally, that when we shifted to these two services, that it would mean that there would be people who would, who would want to just come to, to both, to be here all... All morning and teach Sunday school in one of those hours and and attend the other service. There'd be people who would go, great, now I can serve and still come to church instead of choosing whether or not to come to service or to serve, which is what we had to do for a long time. That's why we had those for a while. We did a week-by-week thing, and then we did a month-by-month thing. And that's what we're still doing. But I tell you, when I, when I was, started, talking about, started this morning talking about that fifth grade class that I was in, that just had one teacher. It wasn't a, a teacher a month. It was, a, it was one teacher. And I don't, somebody asked me if I could remember her name after last service. I can't remember her name, but I can picture her perfectly. I can picture her perfectly. She had a major impact on my life. And each one of you has the opportunity to have that impact. On kids, and if if there was anyone here, and I I just felt convicted to talk about this today, if there's anybody here who would be willing to say, you know, I'm going to commit to teaching in this class, I'm going to commit to teaching the K through two class, or the third through fifth class, or the preschool class, and say, I I want to I want to dedicate my time, I want to invest my life in these kids. And showing these kids about, teaching these kids about God's love, teaching them God's word, discipling them, leading them up in the way they should go, showing them how much we care for them. That would be game-changing. That would change everything for these kids, to have people who are committed to that. Maybe you, you go like, well, listen, I can't just blanket commit to every Sunday. We're not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying there's not, that you can't take time off or like, but I'm saying whatever you're whatever pray about it whatever god puts in her if he says hey do three months hey do four months hey commit to the school year whatever it is i just think it would change everything for these kids if they had adults who were just said like i'm going to be committed to this class i'm going to dedicate myself to this class and show these kids teach these kids about god's love because we are the conduits of god's love to these kids their experience is of of God's love is gonna be based on how adults in the church treat them. That's how they're gonna know whether or not they matter to God is based on how we treat them. We'll wrap up with this, how should we then live? I got three takeaways for today. Number one, look to children as a model for humble faith. That's what he he calls us to. Jesus says in answering the question, who's the greatest? He says, look at children and, and model childlike faith. Number two, consider what your words and deeds say about how you value children. Consider whether, or not just your everyday interactions and when you come to church, do, do kids would kids know that you care about them? And and I know I have kids. I know which I know which adults they think care about them <laughs> by how they well, who they talk about. And even though I'll give you an example, last weekend we were at the Camporama and I was. Uh, just like setting up my tent and everything. And people were showing up. And, um, and the, the Friesen showed up, Mike and Lynn Friesen. And they were setting their, getting their camper set up and everything. And Judah goes, oh, dad, can I go say hi to Miss Lynn? And just that, that, I can't tell you how huge that is. The idea that he, like, she can just be any adult in the, in the church, but he knows her, and he knows that he cares about her. And he wants, the fact that he wants to go say hi to her says so much in that moment, because it means he, he knows that she cares about him. He's excited to see her. She teaches him at, at Wednesday Club. He's excited to see her. Consider what your words and deeds say about how you value children. And lastly, do something to lead Jesus to, to, to lead children to Jesus this week. I just throw that out as a challenge. Maybe it is signing up to teach a Sunday school class for a month or two or something. Maybe it's just bringing a bag of candy for the trunk or treat bringing some snacks for Wednesday club. We need that. Whatever it is, but consider what might you do to lead children to Jesus this week. I'm gonna pray in just a minute here, then we'll have communion together, and then we'll sing one final song. After the service, if you'd like prayer for anything, we we'll have a prayer team that'll be available right over here. Um, please come up, and they'd love to pray with you. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would be leading us as we seek to follow you, that you would grow us in childlikeness, that we would have that kind of childlike faith, that love for you. God, we pray that you would work in our lives to make us more and more like your son, Jesus, and that we would value what he values, we would love what he loves. And specifically today, help us to consider how we interact with children, how we care for children, how we show them your love pray all these things in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.